A year ago, Tiger Woods headlined the class of inductees into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Today, a big day as they're announcing the 12 finalists looking to join Tiger in the 2024 Hall of Fame class. We'll be unveiling those 12 names ahead on Golf Today. Plus, the second annual Jim Thorpe Invitational wrapping up last week. We're going to have him joining us on the show to talk about the opportunities this event is providing for elite minority juniors, college golfers, and tour pros. And Brad Faxon back with NBC Golf, the eight-time PGA Tour winner, will give us a Florida Swing preview before he joins the NBC Golf broadcast team this week for the Honda Classic. We have a jam-packed Wednesday edition of Golf Today coming your way right now. Golf Today. Hey there, welcome into Golf Today inside our Golf Channel studios. He's Golf Week's Eamon Lynch. I'm sitting shotgun alongside him for the next two hours. I'm George Savarikas. Normally, we put the emphasis in golf on Golf Today, but we're going to have to table that for just a second and switch this over to Court TV with everything that's unfolding with Saudis, PIF, and the PGA Tour and other development. Yeah, these billable hours for lawyers keep racking up here, George. They're not going away anytime soon. There's some significant news overnight in the legal battle between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Judge Beth Labson Freeman, California's Northern District, granted a request by the PGA Tour to add the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia and its governor, Yasser al-Rumian, as co-defendants in a countersuit in which the tour alleges Live Golf interfered with its player contracts. Last week, the same court ordered the Saudis to comply with the discovery process in Liv's antitrust suit against the PGA Tour, something they have been strongly resisting. And here to break all of this down for us and the importance of this decision is Professor Jody Balsam, who teaches sports law at Brooklyn Law School. Jody, thanks for joining us. It's been well established the reluctance on the Saudi Public Investment Fund and its governor, Yasser al-Rumian, to be subject to discovery in the U.S. courts. What importance does this decision have on that reluctance of theirs? The court has now allowed uh, the PTA tour to add the Saudi Public Investment Fund and Mr. Al-Rumayan as parties to the litigation. Once they are parties to the litigation, they are subject to the court's greater authority to compel discovery of parties and to compel discovery that's far broader. So how massive a ruling is this for the PGA Tour? Well, the significance of the ruling goes beyond the uh, ability to obtain uh, depositions and documents from the Saudi parties. It now puts them in the position of being potentially liable to the PGA Tour uh, in, their counter, in the counterclaim for tortious interference with contract. And I think it will also have... Um, a, uh, an op it'll give an opportunity for the Saudis and Live Golf to do a profound uh, reevaluation of their entire litigation strategy. I don't think they ever contemplated that the Public Investment Fund would actually be a party to this lawsuit. And they may decide that it's wiser at this stage to consider settlement of all claims, including the antitrust claims, rather than proceed in American courts. How, how do you think all of this actually plays out? Is there an appeals process here, Jody, that we're likely to get bogged down in? Because the judge has shown a certain degree of impatience with any delays in the trial schedule, even to this point. Well, procedurally, what happens next is that uh, the Saudi parties uh, can now raise certain defenses that were not available to them as a non-party simply being subjected to 
uh, a subpoena for documents. Now being dragged into the suit as parties, they may want to claim a jurisdictional defense that the court cannot exert its power over them as parties. Um, that defense is not likely to have much traction, given that a similar argument was rejected, uh, the right of an foreign government to avoid process in American courts, uh, a similar argument was rejected in the context of the motion to compel non-party discovery. The same commercial activity exception that permitted non-party discovery of the Saudis would be available to the court to impose its jurisdiction over the Saudis as parties. Uh, lawyers for the PIF have indicated that they will ask a federal judge to review the ruling. Um, and that's supposed to take place on Friday. Could you give us a little more clarity on that process and your expectations for what may unfold? Sure. Well, we now have two rulings uh, that have gone against the Saudis that they may seek reconsideration of. One was back when they were non-parties, the ruling to compel discovery. They had announced that they would seek reconsideration of that ruling in front of Judge Lapse and Freeman. And now they have Judge Lapse and Freeman's own ruling that they should be participating in the case as parties. Uh, neither of those rulings if and when they are appealed, uh, are likely to gain any relief from their consequences for the Saudis. Both rulings are well-reasoned and have substantive merit. Um, in fact, the initial ruling to compel discovery as non-parties may well be moot at this point, given that Saudis are now parties. So their various procedural avenues from here are um, very unwelcoming. And they need to face the facts that they are going to be substantively involved in this litigation for the long term unless they see a pathway to an early termination through settlement. What's going to happen this Friday is described as a case conference, meaning the judge now has a, a new landscape in front of her with the Saudis as parties, and she's going to press all parties on how quickly they can move towards trial with a January 2024 trial date. And the give in that date is limited, uh, and it's uh, not a good look for the Saudis to seek to advance that, to delay that date further, um, given LiveGolf's protestations that it's essential for their business plan to have a resolution of their antitrust claims. Jody, most of the documents in this case remain sealed, but the judge did unseal several details that relate specifically to the day-to-day -day control that the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia and Yasser al-Rumian exert over the day-to-day -day activities of LIV. Why do you think that detail was unsealed? Well, in the judge's ruling on the motion to seal or unseal documents, uh, she basically drew a dividing line between information and documents that would impair the Saudi fund's uh, ability to compete in investment markets um, and information that the public has uh, an interest in and that the Saudis had no compelling interest to conceal. So, for example, she continued under seal the uh, information that related to how the Saudi investment fund structures its investments, the indemnities it provides, the degree to which it um, requires decision-making to involve it, um, but it unsealed, the court unsealed documents that relate specifically to its day-to-day -day involvement in live golf. And those, the, she found the public had a more compelling interest in disclosure than the Saudis did in concealing it.
Jody, in talking with some friends who are golf fans and uh, who've lightly followed the case, for them trying to distill all the information, it's like reading hieroglyphics for them. They basically just said to me, all right, what's the timeline for when we're going to have some resolution? So with what just occurred, uh, if you could forecast potential windows, if you think it could be three, six, 12 months, and look at a couple different avenues just so we have a, a, a ballpark understanding of when we could actually see the PIF, the Saudis, and the PGA Tour maybe spurred to some final action? Well, at the moment, we are looking at a May deadline for all party discovery. That means all depositions and all document exchanges need to occur by then. That would include the Saudis' uh, secret classified information. They claim that their own national laws prohibit them from turning over. So if push comes to shove and they absolutely have to disclose that information and they feel that there are uh, impenetrable barriers to doing so, that May 2024 deadline seems to be a uh, timeframe for any early resolution of this case. But if they find a way to participate in discovery that satisfies the court's authority here, then we're looking at a January 2024 date for trial. But my prediction, frankly, is that there's no way the Saudis let this case go forward if they stay as parties, and they're going to try to dispose of it without uh, a public hearing. Which would make sense, given uh, everything we know that seems to be ruminating behind the scenes. Jody, uh, thanks as always. I'm sure we're going to be seeing your face on Golf Today again very soon. Good to see you. For more on today's news, we welcome in GolfChannel.com senior writer Rex Hoggard from Palm Beach Gardens. Rex, what are you hearing on the ground at the Honda Classic? George, you've covered this tour a long time, so you know this as well as I do, that historically players really don't pay attention to anything that happens outside of the ropes. They're usually very, very insular. But I will say these are different times, and I think players understand that. As a matter of fact, first thing this morning when I walked out on the range, I had a player ask me what the latest update was on the antitrust lawsuit. So even though they may not get the legal particulars, they know that whatever the outcome is, it could change their tour for good. And one player that does seem to pay a little bit more attention than others was Billy Horschel. And he met with the media on Wednesday at PGA National. I have been aware of it uh, probably more, more last year than it has this year. I do. I know something happened this week where I think um, Saudi Arabia was trying to, you know, say they were sovereign immunity and they didn't have to, you know, do a deposition and, and you know, do all that. Um, and I, I, I've been, you know, realized that that's uh, that was um, their claim was dismissed. So now they're going to have to supposedly do a deposition, whether they really do or not. It's a different story. But yeah, I'm not very. Um, up to date on everything. I know there's a lawsuit over in the UK. I don't think that's been decided on. I know that's uh, started over in Phoenix week, so it's been two weeks now of that, I guess, going on. And I think that's going to be a big ruling. Um, and, and the way things play out, I think if, if uh, Liv Goff loses that, um, I would be hard-pressed to see him winning this lawsuit here in the US, um, whether they continue to go on forward with that if they lost that one in the UK would be an interesting um, play, but it'll all play out the way it way it's it, um, supposed to. I think I've come to the realization, and I'm, and I've always been at this realization that I think I said in Scotland, I, I have no problem with competition. I think competition makes people play better. I think it makes businesses, you know, improve what they do. I think uh, as we've seen because of Live, the PJ Tour has finally uh, made changes to their product model, and 
and what's going to come in 24 is going to be really exciting, I think, for for not only the players, but for the golf fans and for the sponsors and partners of the PJ Tour. So um, I'm fine with Liv doing their thing and PJ Tour doing their thing, and let's compete at it, and let's see who's going to be the best at it. I'm pretty confident in the PJ Tour product model and the players that we have that we're going to always be on top no matter what happens. Now the hearing Billy was referring to was actually an arbitration hearing in London two weeks ago, and we actually expect a ruling on that very, very soon. And it's all part of what's turning out to be a very busy legal season in professional golf. George? Thank you, Rex. Busy legal season, to say the least, with what we've seen unfold so far. Um, your reaction to what Billy had to say and thoughts going forward? I think Billy's sentiments are probably a majority opinion among PGA Tour players that they don't have a problem with the competition. What they have a problem with is that those who left for the competition are litigating to come back here. And the options are really narrowing, in a sense, for live golf here, because you can't, on one hand, claim the protection of the United States court system and then claim, as the Saudis have, that it doesn't actually apply to you when it's inconvenient. And it should be clear here why this litigation is happening. The litigation is an attempt to make real the fantasy Greg Norman sold his players, that they couldn't be banned mm -hmm. by the PGA Tour, that they would have the right to cherry-pick whatever events they choose. And it's now the Public Investment Fund and its governor, Yasser al-Rumian, who's one of the most powerful men in Saudi Arabia, they're now on the hook for what is essentially Greg Norman's folly here. And there are options for getting off that hook, particularly with today's decision are really narrowing fast. And it seems like with all the messaging that Greg was sharing with live players, initially they thought that they would be able to play both tours or return after a certain period of time to the PGA Tour if they so choose. Uh, with the PGA Tour having the upper hand, you're going to hear the sentiments that Billy just said echoed by all his fellow PGA Tour members. On the other side of the coin, I think if you talk, and I tried texting a, a couple buddies who play with Liv, and it's just it wasn't on their radar. They're, they're in the middle of an event right now. I think if you talk with players and agents who are with Liv right now, they're going to wait to the very end until there's some type of resolution to then opine on was the decision worthwhile, was it the right decision, because right now it's still in the process of kind of percolating until we have some finality, but it does seem clear that their uh, legal recourses are shrinking at, at the moment. They're kind of getting backed into a corner, and it seems like we're going to be spurred to some type of conclusion uh, in the coming months. This is the problem with having one benefactor who's financing the tour, is when those benefactors' other interests, in this case, the public investment fund's investments, both known and stealth, when that exposure becomes a danger for that benefactor, then the, the odds that they will continue to set money on fire in support uh, of this project seems... Unlikely. I mean, that reckoning is coming fast. And Judge Beth Labson Freeman has made clear that she's not going to mess around with the schedule here. She's keeping the pressure on in terms of moving this process along. So that's just going to hasten the reckoning. So what we're seeing here is that the U.S. court system is not just another prop for live golf, that there are consequences to filing litigation. What do you think will ultimately happen? I, I think at, at some point the Saudis are going to look for a way out. What impact that has in terms of the long-term future of live golf remains to be seen. But if if you're Greg Norman, if you were Greg Norman with peripheral vision, you would feel as though you're in a very tight pinch right now. But Greg's not exactly known for his peripheral vision. Well, and it is amazing when you look at the entire scale of the public investment fund. I believe it's a $600 billion allocation for live. It's $1.5 So you break that down, that's 0.25%. It's a very small piece of a much larger play. 
So I thought it was very shrewd to what you said, where at a certain point, from a legal standpoint, if you see diminishing returns, then you're not just going to try and keep litigating in different countries around the world. Like, it's basically U.S. and U.K. are the two main hubs. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of money behind this fund, but everyone has a reckoning on the finances, even Saudi Arabia at this point. But we've got more breaking news coming up. The finalists are being announced for the 2024 class of inductees for the World Golf Hall of Fame right here on Golf Today. We'll have that for you right after this short break. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Well, it was just last March when 15-time major champion, 82-time PGA Tour winner Tiger Woods became the newest member of the World Golf Hall of Fame when he was inducted at the PGA Tour's headquarters. The ceremony also inducted former PGA Tour commissioner Tim Fincham, four-time major winner Susie Maxwell, and architect Marion Hollins. Today, the World Golf Hall of Fame released the names of 12 finalists who will be considered for induction in 2024. The finalists include Audrey Harrington, Tom Weiskopf, Johnny Farrell, Jim Furyk, Dottie Pepper, Sandra Palmer, Beverly Hansen, Christy Kerr, and contributors Peter Dawson, Butch Harmon, and Jay Siegel. Rounding out the finalists is seven remaining co-founders of the LPGA, Alice Bauer, Betty Danoff, Helen Detweiler, Helen Hicks, Opal Hill, Shirley Spork, and Sally Sessions. Before gaining consideration, each finalist met the necessary qualifications in hers or her respective category by way of on-course accomplishments or significant contributions to the game of golf. Final selections for the 2024 World Golf Hall of Fame induction class will be announced the week of the players. With more, we're now joined by the CEO of the World Golf Hall of Fame, Greg McLaughlin. Greg, great to see you again. Uh, we see the list of the 12 finalists. Curious, what went into the selection process? Uh, good seeing you, George Amon. Uh, thanks for having us on today. The, um, the selection process is really comprised of uh, a 31-member nominating committee that evaluates all the eligible candidates, and they'll submit an online voting, 
And then subsequently, we also send uh, each of the 63 uh, remaining living Hall of Fame members, and they'll submit online ballot, um, voting as well. And then we gather together with the nominating committee, which we did on Monday, and they'll basically vote uh, four male competitors, four female competitors, and four contributors. And we think we have a really a fabulous list uh, of individuals right now. You'll notice that uh, Padraig, Tom Weisskopf, Johnny Farrell, all finalists uh, for the 2022 induction, as well as Dottie, uh, Sandra Palmer, and, and Beverly Hansen. So uh, all uh, very deserving and all, all qualified. Craig, Hall of Fame debates, disputes, they're kind of part of every sport out there. In this particular process, is there validity to the, the criticism that some people ought to be kind of awarded in life rather than death? Tom Weisskopf died six months ago at 79, never having received this honor. Beverly Hansen died at 89, nine years ago. And you go back to Peggy Kirk-Bell. She lived 95 years, but was inducted three years after she died. Does the process need to be adjusted in any way to rightly honor deserving members while they're here to actually receive it? I, I completely agree with you. It's always better to have a living member, you know, speaking at the event uh, versus uh, not. So I, I, I do agree with you. I, I would tell you that in the last uh, four years, we've tried to widen the uh, process more to um, bring back more of the media members, uh, more people in the golf industry. Uh, that have history and, and understand, you know, really the game. And, and I think that's something that, um, you know, is important to try and have a, a wide view. And the nominating committee, as I mentioned, is 31. And, and we probably had more than 40 of our uh, current members vote on who they thought should be a finalist. And then we have a separate 20-person selection committee comprised of uh, four of the members, uh, the board of directors, as well as uh, media members uh, equally as well, that will then pick uh, up to five candidates. Uh, clearly, we've got some great candidates. I mean, Tom Weisskopf has been strongly considered, you know, for a number of years, as has Beverly Hansen. Uh, and their credentials really go without saying. So I, I think it's something that um, we'd like to take a look at. Um, but again, there's always um, different views on who should get in and, and whether or not, um, you know, who's deserving and who isn't deserving. It, it's a, you know, I guess it's one of the things that every Hall of Fame has to deal with. Greg, how spirited are those conversations behind the scenes when you see someone like a Bernhard Langer or a, a Phil Mickelson who got in years ago, but then a, a Tom Weisskopf will be posthumous? The debates, I mean, what, what are those like as those conversations are unfolding to figure out, okay, if someone's in their 40s or early 50s, they happen to get in and then some could be later in life? Yeah, I would say that the conversations are, are very spirited. Um, and I would think that uh, the members probably have the loudest voices in the room, uh, the competitors that, you know, that really competed. In it. And I'll tell you, in our uh, nominating committee, there was a big push um, from one of the members about the seven remaining LPGA co-founders, uh, which really weren't on the ballot. They were on the ballot as individuals, but not necessarily as cumulatively one. And they made a compelling argument, and they literally were almost unanimous in their voting. 
uh, in order to uh, be considered and, and be recognized really by the Hall of Fame. Uh, so I, I would say the voices are loud. Um, everybody has a, a, a feeling and a passion of potentially, you know, who they think should get in and what contributions that they've made to the game. The, on the competitor side, it, it's very straightforward. Majors rule um, and, and wins on PGA Tour, DP World Tour, LPGA Tour. I mean, that really drives it pretty hard. And, and it's very, very black and white. On the contributor side, it becomes very gray and what the contributions are, because there's so many people that have made so many contributions to the game. And golf is much different than any other sport, really, if you look at the contributors of what they've done, whether they're a, a teacher, an administrator, a, a potentially a co-founder, uh, a leader of the golf organization, you know, like Tim Fincham's, you know, nearly 25 years and leading the PGA Tour, Marion Hollins and the impact that she had on the game. So, you know, generally I would say that um, – Conversations are spirited, but uh, they're all done in, uh, I think, in in, um, in a good approach about the game. And the great thing about all the people that do serve is they really care about the game and, and try to carry it forward. Fred, going back to the seven LPGA founders who you mentioned who are collectively gathered as one nominee here rather than on their individual playing records, do you at the Hall of Fame feel it's part of the mission to in some way rectify previous oversights in terms of the history of this game or correctly honoring people who may have been overlooked unfairly in the past? Absolutely. I think it's important for us to look back at history and you know, potentially see why someone you know didn't get in. And I think it's something that we talk about and the board talks about a lot. Henry Cole is not in. And there's someone that probably is one of the most celebrated golf architects in the world. A um, lot of discussion, really, uh, about, um, you know, having Colt potentially, you know, go in. And I think it's something that um, it was overlooked. And, and really, if you think about the impact that, you know, that Harry Colt has had on the game um, and what he's done in the top 100 golf courses, that's someone arguably that a lot of people, you know, think should be in. And, and there's others like that. But you have to go through the process. It's a biennial induction ceremony. There's a lot of very deserving people um, that, you know, gain consideration. So it's, uh, it, it's, again, it's the debate that probably continues to go on. But Harry Cold is one example of, of someone that probably should be in. Greg, I was a big sports geek growing up. Went to Cooperstown for the Baseball Hall of Fame, Springfield Mass, NBA Hall of Fame, Canton for the NFL Hall of Fame. I've obviously been to the World Golf Hall of Fame. I'm wondering the, the five-year plan for the World Golf Hall of Fame. What's the, the impetus to spur fan engagement? And is there another sport you look at as a successful template? Well, I mean, the NFL is obviously the 100-pound gorilla and the success that they've had really in, in their Hall of Fame. Uh, so we announced uh, last uh, July that the museum will be moving from St. Augustine as part of the USGA's new campus that they're doing at, at Pinehurst. And that'll open in uh, June of 2024 as part of the, the U.S. Open week uh, at Pinehurst. And the focus area there really is going to be more on uh, the lockers and more of a digital presentation uh, than maybe what the current museum that was built in 1997 uh, currently in, in St. Augustine. And I would say that that probably is the most significant uh, change. We're going to continue to you know, do our, our biennial induction ceremonies with uh with this um, class in 2024 occurring um, on Monday of U.S. Open Week uh, as part of the new museum opening. 
And then I think the board's going to look at is the the every other year the right model potentially to do? Uh, are there years, you know, maybe when we go back to back, we looked at it this year um, as an option, but we had such a tremendous um, outpouring of support really around Tiger going in. Uh, probably the biggest single moment really since um, the individuals went in in 1974 when they first launched uh, the World Golf Hall of Fame was uh, last March during the players uh, and, and the milestone really of recognizing Tiger's great career. Yeah, Greg, excited for the move to Pinehurst. I think that's going to be great for golf fans. One million people uh, come to Pinehurst a year. Um, weddings, golf. They have the 10th golf course, which is now being built. And USGA's new facility there, I think, is going to be very, very impressive. So we're really honored to be part of that and appreciate uh, the support uh, that Mike won and, and everyone at the USGA and, and really supporting the World Golf Hall of Fame. Well, thanks for sharing the news with us, Greg. We look forward to seeing you in Pinehurst in June of next year to continue the debate about who's there and who's not there. <laughs> thanks again. Appreciate it, guys. George, where do you stand on the Hall of Fame, this idea? Of, you know, every sport argues it. Every sports mm -hmm. fan debates it. Who belongs? Who doesn't? How close to what it should be is the World Golf Hall of Fame right now, you think? I think it's trending in the right direction. I think the move to Pinehurst will be huge because that will be somewhat replicable to what we see with baseball in Cooperstown or NFL in Canton. They have the Hall of Fame game. You have the cradle of American golf right there. It's already built in with how many people visit there to play golf. That's the perfect location for the Hall of Fame. I think where golf struggles and it's inherent in the game is the lifespan of these players' careers. NBA, NFL, MLB, um, NHL, you have finality when there's retirement. Yeah. And then you know it's a five-year cooling-off period for most sports, and then you can start voting. Major League Baseball, you then have a 15-year window before it would go to the Veterans Committee on if that player is in or out, and you know what percentage of the ballot. Whereas Padraig Harrington's in the field this week and Honda. It's still going. <laughs> exactly. So you can be a professional and play for 30, 40, even 50 years. So do you honor the guy at 45, do you wait till he's 60? Then you don't want to wait too long, like what occurred with Tom Weisskopf. And I think if you ask anyone, is Tom Weisskopf a Hall of Famer? They'd say two times yeah. as a player and a golf course architect. So I think that's what makes it such a challenge is to figure out at the right point of a player's career arc, when do we honor them? I guess this is what happens when you're in a sport where players, they all say, well, I'm not going to hang around and be a ceremonial golfer. They all do. And some of them actually remain quite competitive later in their careers. But you look at some guys who've gone in way back in the mists of time in, when they're still actually quite active and still competitive yeah. in their careers. And to where we are now, where you see the older generation of players who are kind of not getting their due. And to me, it's just kind of sad that Tom Weisskopf died at 79 without being given the honour that it clearly bugged him. That was a glaring omission. It really was. And you could make the same case for... Peggy Kirkbell, to have lived 95 years yes. and then three years after your death to get into the Hall of Fame. It just seems to me that the process needs to be kind of a little more streamlined to honour those who are perhaps on the, on the back nine of life before they're actually gone, and at least when they're around to appreciate being honoured for the, the contribution they made to this game. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, hopefully that's something they're able to get dialed in going forward. So... We're going to take one more look at the finalists. These are the names on the ballot for 2024. And we will know who is part of that 2024 class at the players coming up next month. 
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to Golf Today. In January 2022, we lost a special part of our Golf Channel team. A friend and colleague, Tim Rosefort, passed away after a battle with Alzheimer's disease. He was 66 years old. One of the game's most well-respected voices and well-connected reporters, Tim covered more than 125 major championships and 17 Ryder Cups. During National Alzheimer's Awareness Month, we conducted a series of interviews to help raise awareness. Here's a recap. In conjunction with Golf Channel, Alzheimer's Association is helping educate our viewers on Alzheimer's. It is a difficult diagnosis to hear. One of the things that the Alzheimer's Association really stresses is the importance of getting educated about the disease and getting educated about caregiver strategies and putting plans in place to make sure that you have support as you go through this disease process. Having an early diagnosis um, provides individuals with the ability to plan for their future, adopt any lifestyle changes, and quite honestly, be able to uh, participate in clinical trials. We want to be early so we can give your loved one a chance to have the ability to be treated. Lifestyle can have an impact on our ability to reduce our risk for cognitive decline. So things like exercise, nutrition, maintaining social engagement with family, friends, or your community, going out and playing a round of golf when you're walking and not riding, or with loved ones or family and friends could actually be beneficial in addition to being able to talk to a physician about changes that you see. I'm proud to say that we are starting to see a trickle-in effect of some positive signs, and we will get there, Damon, what you were talking about, that yes, we will defeat this. The Honda Classic was near and dear to Tim Rosenport's heart as he covered the event for more than three decades. The tournament named the Media Center after him in 2021. Additionally, the Honda Classic created an award in Rosenport's honor, the Tim Rosenport Distinguished Writers Award. In 2021, Rosenport was named the first recipient of the award by the tournament. 
And this year's recipient, Randall Mel, has been named the winner of the Tim Rosefort Distinguished Writers Award. Mel has covered the game since 1997, 25 plus years as we take a look at the bio. Randall Mel was our colleague for years here as a writer with GolfChannel.com, also wrote for South Florida Sun Sentinel, two-time first place Golf Writers Association of America award winner, and like I mentioned, the recipient of the Tim Rosefort Distinguished Writers Award. And let's welcome in Randall Mel now. Randall, for years we saw you on the Golf Channel Airways, and it's amazing, two plus decades now, you get this award. Uh, what does it mean to you? Oh, uh, it means the world to me because of what uh, Tim Rosefort meant to me over the years. Uh, uh, I've just had some unique connections to Rosie um, going back to 1990, uh, or actually 1995, I was hired at the Sun Sentinel newspaper. And uh, when I got there, Rosie was the golf writer, and I was uh, um, out in the community uh, sports section in the bureau devouring everything that he wrote because uh, I wanted to do what he was doing. And then I was blessed to be able to work my way up and become the golf writer. And then Rosie uh, and I uh, ended up doing a radio show a national radio show, uh, the Sporting News Network, together with Mark Wood, um, which was uh, really important in my career for two reasons. I got to study Rosie. I got to talk to him for Saturday mornings uh, on the radio for two hours and uh, kind of prepared me to uh, go to the Golf Channel. And when I did go to the Golf Channel, I think Rosie uh, might have been wondering if I was stalking him because it was from the Sun Sentinel to Sporting News Radio to Golf Channel. But it was really a privilege, and today was... Um, it was just an honor to receive an award with his name on it and with Larry Durham and the, the great golf writer on it. And I have to tell you, uh, I do not presume that I am in their league, but I am just so grateful that I'm in their company. And last thing about that is uh, Genevieve and Molly. Genevieve, uh, Rosie's um, wife, and Molly, uh, Rose, one of Rosie's daughters, was there. And uh, it just made it uh, the honor doubly for me to, to be able to celebrate that with them. Randall, having spent so much time around him over the years in all of these different professional capacities, what did you like about how he went about his craft? What did you learn from watching him over those years? You know, Rosie, Rosie had this gift of, uh, I think C.S. Lewis said that uh, um, uh, chivalry, the definition of it was being tough to the nth degree and gentle to the nth degree. And uh, Rosie was that way, you know. He was, uh, uh, he was just good with people. He was a bear of a man. Um, but he just had both sides of that. And just watching him, um, he could be hard on himself. Um, I, I would listen to a segment and think, that's just beautiful. And then uh, Rosie would <laughs> Rosie be coming off talking about uh, how it could have been better this way or that way. So um, he just was a craftsman, all, uh, incredible work ethic. Um, integrity, professionalism, and of course, nobody um, built relationships like he did. But uh, I think just just watching his uh, quest for perfection, uh, it it rose the bar for all of us, raised the bar for all of us. Well, you set a pretty high bar yourself, Randall, and your coverage of the LPGA tour in particular over more than 20 years in this business. You were rigorously honest in how you approached your craft. And you were still criticized by some players because the, you know, the coverage wasn't flattering enough. Is this a disease in golf media where you think there's an expectation that the role ought to be somewhat of a cheerleader rather than simply a reporter? 
Um, boy, you're going to get me in trouble, Eamon. Uh, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's a... I came from covering college football, covering the University of Miami, um, did a lot of investigative reporting, and it was, you know, it was a sea change going to golf because the sensibilities were, were definitely different, um, and uh, for sure, and I think the expectations from players were different. Um, you know, they're not treated the same way that uh, NFL writers or uh, MLB writers um, probably treat players. But, uh, you know, it's part of the nature and the history of the game. And that's probably all I should say without getting in trouble, more trouble. But I'll try to get you in trouble from a different direction then, Ron. Are you optimistic when you look at the golf media landscape right now in terms of, I guess it's fractured over the years. You know, you started as a beat writer on a newspaper, which is a role that's kind of died out over the years, which has a knock-on impact in terms of how news filters up in this game. But are you optimistic at the coverage of the game when you look around the landscape you see now? Um, it's tough, Eamon, because, you know, I love the newspaper business. And it was great. I'll sound like an old man here. It was great in the day, you know. You had all these great writers from newspapers at events, great journalists at it. And, uh, you know, I think um, um, the... Media tents are, press tents are different now. It's, uh, it's not the same, uh, necessarily the same breed of um, reporters. Guys who maybe like Larry Dorman covered the Miami Dolphins and then um, he's covering golf. So I think losing the newspaper dimension has definitely uh, affected the business. And, um, you know, I think um, there's certain corporate influences on the game and reporting that uh, are factors also. Well, as much as changing, it's nice to see someone who actually set a pretty high bar get acknowledged for the work that he's done over the years. Great to talk to you again, Randall. We look forward to seeing you on the road. Outstanding. Thank you. Great seeing you, Randall. As we go to break, I still remember Rosie putting his arm around me and saying, Georgie, whenever you're in Palm Beach, let me know if you need anything. He's always there to lend a helping hand as we once again remember the life and legacy. Tim Rose support. The PGA Tours 2023 Florida Swim kicking off this week with the Honda Classic featuring that treacherous bear trap on holes 15 through 17. Champion course at PGA National. It is a stern test. This is the first event of the PGA Tours Florida Swim. It's also a special week for our friend Brad Fountain. In January, NBC Sports announced that the eight-time PGA Tour winner will join the team as a whole announcer and will make his on-air debut this week at the Honda Classic. Fountain will also contribute to Golf Central and Golf Central Live from Studio Programming on Golf Channel. We're pleased to be joined now by Brad Fountain from PGA National. Brad, it's a little bit of a home game for you this week. You live across the street. Uh, I'm particularly curious about this tournament. You know, it's a little bit pinched on the schedule. It's looking for a new sponsor. It's got a lot going for it in terms of its community connection with the Jack and Barbara Nicholas charity component to it. How big a deal locally in your community is this tournament? It's a huge deal. I, I, when I walked the course yesterday, I mean, for the first time, uh, and, and just could see the amount of stands that they've built throughout the, the entire golf course, and particularly the Bears Trap, where the last four holes have so much room for people. I have so many friends in the area that you know can't wait to come out and watch and I, I think regardless of the quality of the field 
we're going to see a lot of people out here. I think the, the contributions Jack and, and particularly Barbara have done um, make this really, really important. And hopefully somehow we rectify the situation with Honda and the PGA Tour uh, to keep this, keep this venue and keep their uh, Honda sponsorship a long time. Uh, keep going. And Brad, you're making a return to the NBC golf team. What's it like for you being back right. in the fall? I'm so excited. Um, I, I did a, a year with NBC uh, back in 2010, um, you know, with Tommy Roy and, and the whole team back then for seven events. I, I've been doing a little TV the last few years for Sky Sports. Um, so I've seen all the uh, everybody on the team here at, at all the big events. And, and now to be back here and particularly to start, like Eamon said, in my backyard, really, um, I couldn't be more thrilled, more excited uh, about these next five weeks in a row, six weeks in a row, and, and some of the bigger events later this summer. Brad, you mentioned the field, which isn't the strongest this week, but is there a flip side of that? Does it free up some other guys who, who don't have the intimidating guys right there who can be kind of freed up to maybe make a mark for themselves this week? Eamon, there's no doubt about that. And I saw Kramer Hickok just a while ago on the putting green who played the final round um, with Tiger Woods at, at Riviera. And I was talking to Kurt Byram a little bit while ago in, in our production uh, truck, and there's really nobody that's going to intimidate you on that first tee like Tiger definitely would or could. Um, the top-ranked players like Sunjay Im or Billy Horschel and Shane Lowry, uh, they're all nice guys, easy guys to play with. So I think it relaxes the 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 player that's down the, the list a little bit and, and maybe lets them, hey, this is a place I could do well. You know, it's a tough golf course. And, and we know statistically that a lot of these weaker fields are, are won by the same scores under par, uh, but without that intimidation factor from the greatest players in the world. Brad, we're having this debate on Monday. John Rahm has ascended once again to world number one. If anyone this year could be a runaway number one for not just weeks, but maybe months at a time and carry it, or if it's going to be kind of a roulette wheel spinning week to week. We have John Rahm one, Scotty Scheffler two, Rory three. What are your thoughts on what we're going to see going forward? Well, I mean, certainly the way Rahm's played, not just last week, but the last few months, and, and Rory in, in particular as well, uh, doesn't make me think that it's going to be easy for John Rahm to stay at number one. He had a particularly great way, uh, week with his iron play, proximity to the pin, which hasn't been his best of his statistics um, over his career um, and and now as we get to Florida get to um, you know I would say more improved Bermuda grass greens rather than the Poana I think a lot of players like Rory who prefer to play uh, on these grasses um, and, and particularly these courses like Bay Hill where, where he's won a few times um, I, I think it'll be very hard for Rom to keep that same spot but it's gonna be very hard to take over his his place from how his confidence is soaring Brad you were runner-up at the Honda Classic back in 2002 when it was at Heron Bay. And if you'll forgive me for mentioning that you were 0 for 3 in cuts made at PGA National. What are you looking for this week in terms of a particular player who you think could make a mark? Or is there a particular skill set you're looking at from someone who might actually break through this week? Well, there's a couple things here. I mean, I think you can tell from um, just behind me on the, on the lake here, all the wind that's blowing coming to the southeast here. And it's a steady wind, and it's predicted to be that way for the rest of the week. Um, there's a lot of first-time players here at Honda, and this course really requires some course knowledge, and particularly the par threes here. Um, with this wind, the bear trap holes there on 15, the par threes on 15 and 17, it's not the most difficult wind. It's out of the right 
Um, on 17, it was even helping a little bit yesterday. So I don't know if we'll see treacherous scores. We always seem to see a lot of balls go in the water there. If the wind happens to shift, I would say maybe a veteran player like Shane Lowry who came so close last year. But I think Minwoo Lee, the Australian, who's played so well um, and, and isn't really well known here in America, um, he's had, I think, six of the last eight events he's played on the DP World Tour have been uh, top ten finishes. Five of those have been top four or better. He finished second last event he played in Abu Dhabi. Um, this guy's slight in build, has a swing that you would be envious of, especially you, Eamon, who, you know, he's got a high uh, hands in his swing, unlike yours. But he hits it long on yesterday on the ninth hole. He hit a drive over the lake, which was a 320 carry, and had a 50-yard flick into a 420-yard par 3. So I think Min Woo Lee would be a, a great person to watch, see how he does. And if you're in Australia, you're used to playing in these wins. And just over the last hour, they've really picked up. So the afternoon is going to be tough for these players at PGA National. Brad, you know this place as well as anyone. For a fan, either watching the event for the first time or getting out there for the first time, we hear all the hype with the bear trap. We've talked about five, six, seven. Do you have a personal favorite stretch of holes on the champion course? Yeah, if I was coming out just as a spectator here, I would definitely want to be between 15, 16, and 17. Um, th there's some spots on 16 where you can see the sh approach shots into the green on 16 and then watch the tee shot on 17. Um, and, and it's it's a really it's a big stadium, not quite like 16 at Phoenix is. But when you walk under the tunnel from 16 to 17, uh, I, I kind of equated it to the uh, the park out in San Francisco that had it's a little open on the right. You see some of those home runs go into the water. Um, and that, I don't know. I think there's sort of a Venturi <laughs> wind effect around in there that can really circle around with the, the stands and, and, and really make it tough for the players to choose a club. So I would definitely want to see the players crash and burn <laughs> around there. Brad, you're actually back in competitive action on Monday at the Seminole Pro Member. I'm curious, whose coattails are you riding this year? And is there a chance you might actually finish low in answer? Well, my partner, uh, my longtime partner, Tom Ryan, who's been a member at Seminole for a while, we, we played at the AT&T, won that uh, Pro-Am once. So we're on the Great Wall behind the first tee at Pebble. And we've been close to mahogany, but... Um, I, I haven't been on my game, as you well noticed uh, last week. I played in Naples at the Chubb Classic and only finished 28 shots behind leader Bernard Langer. So I, I got to do some practicing. But I, I hit some balls last night. I think I, I found it. <laughs> you love to hear that, Brad. I know Eamon's uh, fleeing south later this week. I hope your wine cellar isn't overly depleted uh, by the time Honda Classic is wrapped up. I only well, drink. I got the stuff. bottom rack filled for all the swill he <laughs> likes to drink. Brad, enjoyed it. Great catching up. Looking forward to the call this week. Thank you, Matt. The PGA Tour University Velocity Global Ranking is giving playing opportunities to the game's top college seniors. At the conclusion of the NCAA Men's Individual Golf Championships in May, the top player in the ranking will be awarded PGA Tour membership, while players inside the top 20 will receive status on the Corn Ferry Tour and other umbrella tours. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at this week's updated PGA Tour University Velocity Global Ranking. We see Barkley Brown, the Stanford stud, currently rounding out the top 20. And we're going to dive now from 11 to 20 inside the top 10, 1 through 10. And one of the names on the list, that would be Texas A&M senior Sam Bennett, who currently clocks in at number four. And Sam has been playing some great golf. He's about to join us 
in just a moment. In August, Sam Bennett won the 122nd U.S. Amateur Championship, which was held at Ridgewood Country Club. He beat Georgia Southern's Ben Carr on the 36th hole. How sweet is that? One of the perks of that win an invite to compete in the Masters at Augusta National in April. Sam saying, me and my Masters outfit at age three, teeing it up at Augusta in 23, always dreamed of getting this to Augusta. See you in April. And how's this for timing? Sam just fired a school record round of 11 under 61 to make a five-stroke deficit and claim medalist honors at the John Burns Intercollegiate. So you could say, life is pretty good if you're Sam Bennett, who joins us now on Golf Today. Sam, we just mentioned that final round, 61. As you look at the best rounds you've ever played in competition, where does that stack up? Yeah, that was a, a good round, obviously. A school record, I kind of blocked out. Um, you know, I was never really thinking of, you know, winning the golf tournament necessarily. I just wanted to, you know, shoot a good round for my school and, you know, get a good finish. But, uh, you know, I caught the course when it was calm. We had ball in hand. Uh, it was soft, scoreable, not much wind. And um, I just wanted to birdie the three par fives on the front, um, which I was able to do. They're all gettable. And then um, I hit a few close on the, you know, par fours and golf to a hot start. And then I found myself um, in into contention where I was able to, you know, try to win a golf tournament. And, um, you know, I was just happy to get back in, into contention and, you know, feeling a little nerves and pressure. You know, that's where I want to be. So uh, I was happy to be able to get the job done in Hawaii. Sam, you turned down an invitation last week to compete in the Genesis Invitational at Riviera so you could play with your team. And for similar reasons of team loyalty, you've turned down invitations at the Arnold Palmer Invitation and the RBC Heritage. Does your team appreciate your loyalty or do they think you're a little bit nuts or both? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, a little both. I got an exemption to the uh, DP World Tour in Dubai and turned it down. And, um, you know, I love my team. I love my coaches. I love AM. And, you know, I'm committed. I came back for my fifth year and I wanted to play for my school and, you know, graduate and help, help the AM and the Aggies the best I could. And also, um, you know, I played in some tour events and I kind of know, you know, how they are. and you know how much experience I get, but uh, I get it. So I mean, part of the reason I want to help my school, but um, you know, they I want to play in those when I turn pro since I get you know seven or eight starts. So I want to use those, you know, once I'm done being an amateur, so I can you know use those to my advantage. But um, no, I love my school and I love playing for them. Delayed gratification, as they say, is waiting to get those starts when there's a nice little payday on the back end. As the reigning U.S. amateur champion, then you return to campus at Texas A&M and College Station. You're just coming off a victory here. Uh, what's the season been like so far with the notoriety that is now attached to your name? Yeah, it's cool. Um, you know, I'm still a small-town kid from Astonville. Uh, you know, I get a little different looks, you know, going to eat places or going around campus sometimes. But uh, I'm still a golfer. But uh you know, I got some unfinished business here in College Station. You know, I've been here five years, and I really want an SEC ring and compete for a national championship. So that's what's on my mind is, uh, you know, playing the best and being the best teammate I can to, you know, try to get some championships this season. You've got a big date coming up, Sam, as we just saw on your social media post. You're headed to Augusta National to play in the Masters in April. You've been dreaming about it since age three. 
what do you think that week's going to be like for you? And is there anyone you have in mind that you really want to try to play a practice round with that week? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's going to be cool. It still feels like a dream. I mean, um, you know, growing up, you always, you know, practice those putts, this to, you know, win the Masters, this, that. Um, you know, I've been watching a bunch of highlights just to, you know, get ready. And um, I feel like I got a good feel for the course just from watching it, as crazy as that sounds. I've been playing it a bunch on the video game. And, um, you know, I'm ready. Um, I I'm really excited for the week. Um, I'm prepared. I played in multiple, you know, tour events. And I made the cut at the U.S. Open. So, you know, the crowds, uh, I love that. They won't bug me at all. And, um, you know, I think, the, I mean, I'm a drawer, so I'm looking forward to, you know, some of those tee shots. But, uh, you know, I'd like to play with Tiger. Hopefully he tees it up. But, I mean, I know that's a stretch. But, uh, no, there's maybe Scotty. I like to play with Scotty in the practice round, um, get a good feel for it. And I think that would make me feel comfortable since I'll be paired with him. So, uh, maybe we can work that out. That would be a Longhorn and an Aggie playing together in a practice round. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have the tweet where it says, me and my master's outfit at three. You already got the outfit laid out for round one? <laughs> no, I'm still working on some uh, stuff. No, I haven't, I haven't gotten that far. Uh, I'm taking it one step at a time <laughs> and, um, you know, seeing where it goes. But uh, I'll, I'll get some good, uh, some good fits for the week for sure. Sam, you're number four right now in the PGA Tour University rankings. There's a lot at stake in the coming months in terms of what status you can leave the amateur ranks with. How much attention are you paying to that on a week-to-week -week basis? Yeah, uh, well, I want to I get number one in um, the amateur rankings. I think I'm number four right now, but it's, it's a pretty close stretch. But, uh, you know, definitely I want to, you know, stay top five for sure. Um, if I can get one, that'd be good to get, you know, you know status um, with the new, uh, the new system. But um, I don't know how much it will matter for me since I'll be playing in some um, tour starts and I really won't be using the, uh, you know, corn fairy starts, but I definitely want to stay top five just in case. Um, because what people forget about is, you know, top five gets, gets, uh, gets in the final stage of Q school. So, uh, yeah, I definitely pay attention to them. And, um, you know, like my, my coach says, uh, don't worry about the rankings, just good golf takes care of everything. That's what you always hear. Just play better and you're good to go. Sam Bennett, you're, you're playing great after that final round 61 in the win. Great to spend some time with you. Thank you all.